0: So we are making our way through Lent, the holiest, most sacred season of the entire Christian year. And during the sacred season, we're looking at some of the ordinary, everyday things that are a part of the Lenten story. Things that Jesus invites us to see as holy. And by paying attention to them, we we can discover the sacred in the small things. The things that we do and we see. And we seek to open our hearts to all that is around us. And as we do, we we begin to discover moments of sacred grace everywhere we go in nearly everything that we do. This week, we'll be looking at one of the stories where Jesus gathers his disciples in an upper room. They gather together to celebrate the Passover meal, and he takes two things that that are central to the Passover story, but yet also basic staples of just about every meal, bread and wine. And he gives them for them. He thanks God for them. And then, and then gives them to the disciples as a sign of his love and as a promise of his return. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. Here begins the reading. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he would given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here ends the reading. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So if I were to ask you, what is the central ritual of the Christian movement? of the Christian community, what would you say? Most would proclaim that it's communion, that time when we gather together to to share in a simple meal of bread and wine. It's celebrated in thousands of places in thousands of different ways. In many ways, it's been a central part of the Christian tradition since that night in the Upper Room. In many ways, it's the defining ritual of the church It certainly is for this denomination, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Some churches, some traditions celebrate communion only once a month, some once a quarter, a few even just one time the entire year. But we think it's so important that we do it every time that we gather. We even have a chalice, a wine goblet, as the logo of our movement. You see, communion is at the very center of everything we do. We gather around this table. That's central to who we are and what we do. It's at the center of our worship service, at the center of our sanctuary. Some churches have the pulpit in the center, but we we have our communion table. Everything that we do in worship points us and moves towards this moment when we gather together here each week. Someone once said that a disciple service without Communion would be like like taking a shower without turning on the water. So we do it every week. Communion, I mean, not shower. Hopefully you do that a little more often. And what's at the heart of communion? It's bread and wine. There's a word in Greek, koinonia. It's a rich word, yet no single word in English really adequately expresses, sometimes it's translated as community, sometimes companion, but it literally means to share bread with. And when we gather together, when we share this meal through the act of sharing space of breaking bread, we are in that moment. We are companions. We are koinonia. You see, the theology behind breaking bread has deep biblical roots. At one point in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, bread is referred to as the staff of life. Sharing a meal with someone often meant giving up a portion of your own sustenance. And so thereby, uh, therefore acknowledging the worth of the other person, it'd be like saying, I value you enough that I would share my life-giving food with you. Now, of course, we know that that God commanded the Israelites to share a meal on the night before they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. And that meal became known as the Passover meal. And then God provided manna from heaven, bread from heaven for the Israelites every single day as they wandered in the wilderness, in the desert. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he simply said to say, Give us this day our daily bread. And that phrase has both spiritual as well as physical significance. You see, bread is a loaded word in Scripture. Bread is mentioned 330 times in the Bible. And if you mention unleavened bread, it's an additional 45 times. Sometimes, sometimes it talks about what people eat. You know, the the wheat and the yeast and the water, it's all mixed together and and baked. It's dipped in olive oil, it's seared with butter, it's spread with peanut butter and jelly. But other times when it's used, it's, it's meant metaphorically, in various different ways, sometimes talking about earning a living, sometimes sharing in the future of God. The Bible also talks about Christ as being the true food from heaven. One of the great miracles of Jesus was when he took a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and he multiplied them and was able to feed a large gathering of people, of disciples, of followers. And as we just heard, on the night before his crucifixion, he gathered together with his closest friends, those that have been with him since the very beginning. And he took bread and he blessed it and he gave it to them. And he told them that they were to eat that bread as a way of remembering him, as a way of remembering his life. And even after his death, Jesus appears to some of the disciples as they're walking along the road to Emmaus, even though they didn't recognize him, until, until they shared bread together. And in that moment, they knew, they believed in new ways that he indeed was alive. In the life of the early church, bread was incorporated, as it has been in the Jewish Passover, into a liturgical ritual that would eventually be called communion, what we sometimes refer to as the Eucharist. There's something wonderful, something satisfying about bread, isn't there? In the devotion book that we have for our season of Lent, Julie Richardson says, Bread is earthy, ancient almost every culture has has had some form of bread as its nutritional staple it graces family tables it gets handed out at soup kitchens it's is fed to stale uh, to geese and ducks and when made at its best and its most whole it fills stomachs with goodness and the act of sharing it with someone you love someone you care about someone you have connected with is nothing less than sacred Jesus once said that people shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, the idea of saying this is that we need a certain kind of nourishment that we put into our bellies. And he was right, of course. Yet sometimes it's not just an either or situation. Sometimes we put into bellies is also like like feasting on God. God. Because it's so good. Because it connects us with something elusive within ourselves. Frederick Buechner says, Man doesn't live by bread alone, but he doesn't live long without it. To eat is to acknowledge our dependence both on food and on each other. It also reminds us of other kinds of emptiness that, that not even the blue plate special can touch. There is a hunger within each of us, for food, yes, but also for a connection with the divine. That night in the upper room, Jesus shared in the Passover meal with his disciples, bread was not the only thing that he gave them. He also raised a cup, one that was certainly filled with wine, something else that was central to the Passover ritual. Wine in the scriptures is often seen as a as a symbol of gladness, as a symbol of celebration. I realize that there are some personal narratives that, when it comes to wine that, that need to be acknowledged. They need to be honored. Some people don't drink wine because of some strict religious values. Some people simply don't like the taste. And there are those that don't drink wine because, because they battle alcoholism. And their quest for sobriety is a, is a life-or-death spiritual journey. In fact, the reason that we use unfermented grape juice here in this congregation is to be as inclusive as we can be, to remove any barriers that anyone may have, to keep someone from being a part of this sacred ritual. Still, others like how it tastes. They incorporate it to the context of just about every meal, And there are those, there are those, aren't there, that that don't just drink wine. They love wine. They love learning how the the grapes grow, how how wine is made, how a a Napa Cabernet is different than a Sonoma Cabernet. They spend all sorts of money stocking up their wine cellars. To touch their latest copy of The Wine Spectator is to take your own life into your hands. Not only did Jesus drink wine, but apparently he drank a good bit of it. In fact, in fact, some people observed this and, and accused him of not taking God seriously. But I would say that not only did he take God seriously, but he took God joyously. For Jesus, God was life and joy, much like wine itself. And that included a good party every now and then, with friends, with family. That's why Jesus compared the kingdom of God to a to a festive party when his first recorded miracle was when he turned water into wine at a family wedding celebration. By the way, it wasn't just any wine either. It was an exquisite Pinot Noir from the Russian River Valley. Of this, I am sure. Now, I'm telling you it was the good stuff because... Now, this is not the sort of church where the preacher said it, we have to believe it. But on this instance, I think you should listen to what I say. I I don't have all the answers. I wrestle with doubts just like everybody else. But of this, I am sure it was not a white Zinfandel. (laughs) I think Jesus was the very first one to say, white Zin is sin. Trust me, friends, life is too short to drink bad wine. So what does all this mean? Where are we, are we going with this? You see, in Jesus' life, everything is sacred. Central to the Torah, to the books of the prophets, all of life is sacred. There are no compartments. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I've been working really hard lately, and in, in my career, I've been focusing on my career, but now, now I really need to focus on my spiritual life. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said it? Or maybe you, you say something like, I'm just sort of feeling out of whack, and my, my family's going through some stuff. It's sort of been really draining to me. I just need to give some spiritual energy to my life. You see, Jesus would hear that and not have any idea what you were talking about. That would be an absolutely foreign concept to him. Your spiritual life as opposed to what? other life you see jesus never talked about his spiritual life because all of life all of life is sacred all of life is lived in and for and with god so this western way of looking at at life that you've got your work and you've got your relationships and you've got your your family and your church stuff all of that all of that would be completely foreign to anyone in the biblical times. You see, what you wear, how you conduct your business, your money, your sexuality, the ways in which you engage with the physical creation, all of that, all of life is sacred. Food is central to life. And so the meal for a good Jew like Jesus would be a way in which you encounter the divine the way that you experience the simple truth that, that all of life is sacred. In a Jewish home, the table is often called an altar because food, it sustains you. It comes from the earth. It's holy, sacred. In Jesus' time, the meal was a reminder that all of life was sacred, that when we gather together, when we bring break bread. And when we drink wine, we encounter the divine, which is why, is it not that we oftentimes pray before we eat? 25 years ago, Sarah Miles was a cook in a restaurant in San Francisco. She was a devoted foodie, and not only was she a chef, but she also became a food critic. She described herself as a happy atheist. She was a lesbian woman who had seen how LGBTQ folks had been, had been seen and treated by the church. And she never felt welcome. So she was very content, or at least she thought, in her secular world. But one morning she was walking through the streets of San Francisco towards the farmer's market and just happened, for some unknown reason, to pass St. Gregory Episcopal Church. And spontaneously, she just walked in. And she sat there, and when it came time for communion, she came forward, and she tore off a piece of the bread, and she dipped it in the cup, and she put it in her mouth. And in that moment, she experienced a radical, religious conversion. She said, I put the bread in my mouth, and I realized i realized on the one hand that I was eating bread, but I also realized in that moment that God was real, that God was alive, that God was in my mouth. And this disconnect between these two realities just sort of broke her open. It was shocking. It was outrageous. It was terrifying. She says, I wasn't searching to become a Christian. I didn't want to become a Christian. But in that moment, she said, that experience made her want to feed others in the same way that she had been fed. And so over the next several weeks, over the next several months, her life would change dramatically. She said, I wanted to turn Holy Communion into groceries. I came to church and I was fed, and so I stayed to help out. And seeing how real hunger is in America, even in my own food-obsessed, fancy, organic, upscale city, where beneath the foodie glamour, one in four kids is hungry, was eye-opening. And so she started a food pantry. And it grew from serving 35 families in a few short weeks to over 300 families People found out what she was doing and, and, and people started sending her money. She got a, a $250,000 gift from a man that she'd never met who had heard what she was doing, was blown away by it. And she used that money to open nine more food pantries in the city of San Francisco. Now, to this day, they feed thousands Without any questions being asked, they feed everyone who comes without exception. They, the place is, is run by misfits, people who came and were fed and decided to stay and help. She writes all of, about all of this in a book called Take This Bread. She says, Jesus doesn't pick and choose his dinner companions, He eats with everyone, not just the good people or the right kind of Christians or the people that I happen to like. Eating the body and blood of Christ, for me, she says, implies a radical inclusivity that demands action. And if you take it seriously, communion changes everything, including most religion. Bread and wine, so common yet Just like life, it's holy. They have the power to sustain us and to fill us in sacred ways. And every meal around every table is holy and sacred. And any time we gather together with friends and with family and even with strangers to break bread and to share wine can be a holy moment. So may we in the days ahead. May we share God's goodness with everyone we meet as we recognize that every day, everyone, every meal is sacred.